Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. Independent journalism has a strong role to play. It matters because just imagine how easy it's been recently to hijack important conversations about respecting gender and lifestyle decisions and racial, ethnic, and religious traditions. These have become buzzwords for a pushback from the troglodytes who'd rather we go back to the days when it was okay to hold down everybody else who was deemed as inferior. So this is why we are at a crucial crossroads in our history. Independent journalism has been the site to locate incisive analysis and perspectives typically passed over by the hegemony established by mainstream and corporate media. And that to me was the power of, of journalism. It wasn't so much just the idea of writing the story, but it was about getting to the truth. Speaking truth to power is a phrase often spoken and arguably a central tenet to independent journalism and community-produced media. In early March, a network of community media outlets gathered to assess and collaborate for the Media Consortium Conference that took place in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, R.J. Lozada. Stay tuned. Founded in 2006, the Media Consortium is a network of independent and community media outlets committed to values-driven journalism. Making Contact is a member of the Media Consortium, and today we're bringing in a portion of a greater conversation examining the role independent media plays in today's contentious media terrain. First, you'll hear Ricardo Sandoval Palos, managing editor of 100 Reporters, a nonprofit investigative news organization. And then you'll hear from Amara Enia, public policy expert and global leadership fellow with the Global Strategist Association. All right. We'll do a sound check. <laughs> okay. Um, it's nice and cozy up here, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, listen, hey, thanks for everybody for coming out. Uh, uh, so I'm just here to facilitate what I expect will be a pretty dynamic, powerful conversation that will set the tone, I expect, for the coming days of discussion and argument and future planning and mapping out exactly what this dynamic field of independent journalism is going to be all about at a very critical time in our history as journalists. Um, just so you know, I'm a proud veteran of three decades in journalism. Uh, I came up as one of the generation of reporters who um, was trained by professors and editors who probably drank too much. And I attended school in Northern California at Humboldt State University. So I know they smoked too much. <laughs> but you know what? They cared much about the integrity of journalism and the integrity of an independent spirit that responds to one thing, truth, and keeping an eye out for those who cannot keep an eye out for themselves. This is what our mantra was at Humboldt State, and I've carried that through my 30 years. But you know, I began, I'm an immigrant myself from Mexico. I was a little kid when we first crossed the border, legally, from uh, Tijuana to San Diego. And um, I learned English 
by reading a daily community newspaper as I folded it four o'clock in the morning before I delivered it to doorsteps in our, in our neighborhood. And so my sources of English come from a community standpoint and Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes, which I saw on television. But you know what? What it also gave to me, what I think was an appreciation of what it took to get news from journalists all over the world to your doorstep and hopefully admit to, make, to have it make a difference. But you know what? I also realized that we're in very different times today. Today, community newspapers are hurting. Regional newspapers are taking it in the shorts. Believe me. I like that phrase. Believe me. I finally get to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a sector that has to step up, that will step up, to fill an increasing void. It's independent journalism. It's independent reporters, independent investigative reporters, and those who have interesting, powerful stories to tell. I used to believe that nobody wanted to hear about me. The, the me in journalism I was taught didn't have a place. There was no I in reporting, right? But you know what? I realized that today, as we're talking about threats to people who look like an other, people who appear not to belong from here, regardless of where they may actually be from or legally be allowed to reside, is something that I grew up with. I grew up with that sense. I was profiled as a kid. I had to show my papers on the streets of San Diego. I had to prove to a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to a Border Patrol agent on an Amtrak train between San Diego and Los Angeles that I was a legal resident of the, of the United States. And I thought, I'm a college graduate. I was wearing a sport coat. I was on my way to a job interview, and this is the reception that I got on this train. And I thought to myself, it doesn't matter. It's what you look like, right? And that sort of cast me in this community and makes me today feel like I can empathize with what's happening to many communities in our country. So my message on the, in that regard is that we all have important stories to tell, and let's not, the old, let's not allow the old conventions of journalism to prevent us from telling necessary, relevant, and resonant stories to communities that I think can benefit from us and then can help sustain us as independent journalists. So why is this important? Why do we need this? I think we've lost something critical as media has evolved and has become ever more concentrated in fewer corporate hands and even in fewer public media hands. Uh, it seems that we just don't have to get to know each other anymore in our communities. We don't have to get to know that other. We don't have to understand their origins and their traditions. And so we lose a thread there. We lose a thread of civic and civil discourse, which I believe used to mark our conversations as, an, as a nation. And I think we've lost something there. So this is why I believe independent journalism has a strong role to play. It matters because just imagine how easy it's been recently to hijack important conversations about respecting gender and lifestyle decisions and racial, ethnic, and religious traditions. These have become buzzwords for a pushback from the troglodytes who'd rather we go back to the days when one gender and one class could tell us that it was okay to make fun, it was okay to make jokes, 
it was okay to hold down everybody else who was deemed as inferior. So this is why we are at a crucial crossroads in our history. So that sets us up for what I believe and what I expect will be a fascinating and interesting conversation. Okay, so Dr. Amara Enya, here with you. Um, so thank you for being here. This is an excellent crowd. Um, I also want to thank the Media Consortium for pulling together uh, what I call my former colleagues before I apparently abandoned the craft and went to law school. Um, so my perspective being here is as someone who came back into the space of journalism uh, after having been away for some years, but I came into journalism uh, because of social justice. And so my earliest memories were when I was in undergrad and sitting in a school board meeting and the school was about to be closed. The teachers were all going to be fired. They called that reconstituting a school. And I remember sitting in the back, it was very hot, I was sweaty, it was stuffy, um, everyone was piled on top of each other. And there was a parent who was at the microphone and she was in tears. She was in tears because she had developed a relationship with one of the teachers who taught her special needs child who was going to be fired. And so I sat in the back of that room as someone who was always interested in education policy, but as someone who was actually interested in telling stories and telling the story of that mother who was in tears at the microphone as her school was about to be uh, reconstituted. And that to me was the power of, of journalism. It wasn't so much just the idea of writing the story, but it was about getting to the truth. And I think at least from what I bring to this conversation as someone who forayed into politics, who works in public policy, um, but who has come back around to engaging in journalism from the stance of wanting to tell the truth. I think what we have to be careful about is that understanding the context of this country with our new leadership, the antidote to what we have is not to be the counter, is to be the truth teller. So if we believe that there is some truth, whatever the topic is, that should be our goal. I think it's quite easy to fall into this notion that we have to be the anti of what we don't like, right? We have to be against this president. Anything he says, we have to say the opposite. And that's actually not the case. We have to speak the truth. And the truth comes out in the stories that we uncover and in the questions that we ask. So our ability to ask the critical questions of the people that we're interviewing, of the context of the stories that we're uncovering, because we're not just telling the stories, we're uncovering the stories. I think that's the antidote to what, to this current political climate, the current social climate, uh, and many of the challenges that we are that we're experiencing here. So I think that's sort of the perspective that I want to bring to this conversation. You just heard journalists Ricardo Sandoval-Palos and Amara Enia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Making Contact, a national radio project. And today we're listening to a few panelists assess the role of independent media. Next, you'll hear from Joseph Torres, who is the Senior External Affairs Director for the Free Press. And following that, journalist Michelle Garcia.
So the word transformation is a word uh, that what does it mean? What do we mean by transformation? Um, I work on media issues because I believe it's a central racial justice issue. If you can't tell your story, it's hard to fight for racial justice. When other people are demon dehumanizing you, are, uh, are criminalizing you. For two centuries now, I mean, from the very first printed word in our country in 1690, Native Americans were described as savages, right? Race and racism has been essential to the narrative of the United States in the mainstream press from the very get-go. People of color have been fighting against that narrative for two centuries. In New York City, uh, Freedom's Journal was the first African-American newspaper in, in it. They said, we wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us. For the press, from the press to the pulpit, we have suffered greatly from being misrepresented, something like that, pretty close. That story is still the story today. We don't get to really speak for ourselves. Um, it is uh, r racism in the mainstream media serves a function. It serves a function to be able to, I believe, as we and Juan talk about in the book, with a, a service of white racial hierarchy, in service of white supremacy. You can enslave people if you dehumanize them. You need a media system that's able to dehumanize folks in order to pass policies that harm folks. Um, Native Americans, you take away their land. Uh, the Mexican Americans, you take a, you annex the, South, uh, the Southwest. The internment of Japanese, the, the mass surveillance of the Muslim community. It is hard to do that without a mainstream media that does not have sympathy for those who you are harming. For me, one of the most incredible things, and Ricardo, you've covered this, on immigrants, people have no idea the humanitarian crisis we have on our border. How many people die trying to come to this country all the time? Like 6,000 people, as a conservative estimate since 2000, have died trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, and a lot of them are buried in pauper's graves. No one ever, uh, you know, never to, to, to claim them. And yet, their stories go untold, and yet they are a threat to society. Folks are dying trying to come to this country. Then you have the issue of structure. The media is also a structure within a system. And throughout history, uh, that the, uh, our government has placed control of the media in the hands of a few, whether it's the telegraph, radio, television, uh, cable, and now the internet. And so we're fighting against two things, immediate system uh, institutions whose service is into service of white racial hierarchy, and two, a system that's placed in the hands uh, that don't belong to people of color. So we don't own anything. We don't own radio stations, TV stations. Um, and so how do we challenge, how do we, how do we transform the media to where we actually control the, the, uh, the construction and distribution of our own narrative. How do we do that, right? That's, a, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with and tackling. Um, how do we do that when everything is so entrenched, right? When consolidation is as it is, uh, Bernie, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and all folks talk about breaking up the banks. What do we need to break up in order to have the uh, transformational media system where we are able to control our own stories and don't have to go through media gatekeepers. Um, the last, if I could read a quote, everyone likes to quote Martin Luther King, it seems, you know? And so, this is what he had to say about the media, right? And the question for media journalists and journalism institutions. He said in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? He asked, 
he, he had a question for uh, white folks who were in support of uh, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, right? He wrote that often in white America, right, that the demand, uh, what they were advocating for, was for black people not to get harmed anymore. But from the president to the pulpit to the press, they were not for true equality. They were not for true freedom. And so in these stories, as I heard you talking about, how we're talking about transformation of our society where race is at the center of the narrative. That's the question I have. Always race is at the side. But throughout American history, racism has been the center of the American narrative and also in the journalism narrative since, I, I said, since 1690. So I can go on and on, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, so I'm going to tell you all a little story to kind of, uh, as a way to characterize how at least um, I have worked and how I think many people have worked um, and how the media has operated. In um, early December, I was in Standing Rock um, when the blizzard came through. Uh, it was around the time the veterans were there. And uh, I was filling up my thermos of water. The medics center station had set up these big thermoses and you had tea, one with tea and one with hot, just plain hot water. And I figured out that since it was freezing, it's better to keep hot water in your thermos because it takes it longer to get cold than if you put room temperature since the room is about 20 degrees, right? So I'm there and there's a man and he's filling up his thermos. And I ask him, where can I get uh, some toe warmers because they work better than the foot warmers that I have. I figured that out. And eucalyptus oil. And he looked at me and he said, through that door. And then when he was done filling up his thermos, he said, you were supposed to bring your own. And I looked at him and I go, who are you? And he said, someone who brought his own. And I'm like, mind you, this man just filled up his thermos with someone else's tea, right? And I was just like, I wrote about this in a piece for one of your members for High Country News. As a, but I'm going to give it as an another kind of overlay to this, which is I think it was a perfect example of how very often we operate and how I have operated, is so committed to our ideology that we overlook our actual behavior and what we're showing people. I'm so committed to doing the right thing and standing with Standing Rock, but when I get there, I'm gonna be talking to you about hot water. And I have done this so much, in fact, and I think a lot of us have. Great intentions, completely obscured, blinding us, right? And I would go back to my home in South Texas to report, to do important investigative journalism and critical journalism on South Texas, which has become a police state in the name of border security. And every time I'd go back, my friends and family would say, why don't you do a happy story? And I would say, <laughs> editors don't want a happy story, really. Because um, that's not real journalism, is what I would tell them. And I had to revisit this exchange recently in a piece I wrote for the Oxford American because what I realized was that what they were saying was, why don't you show them our humanity? Why, you know, you are showing them our circumstance and they will know the circumstance but not us as people. 
And that I wrote as part of this awakening I had in writing this piece as I went on to describe that last year was in fact a year of a spiritual awakening that this country is experiencing through the struggle for racial justice. That what we saw last year was people demonstrating humanity as a way to inspire us to stave off the despair that ultimately captured the hearts, the souls, and minds of many voters, fear. And I had to reckon with what kind of journalist have I been? When, you know, have I been the guy with the thermos so clinging to my sense of righteousness, right? And that's, I think, the challenge we're facing right now. And this word has come up so many times tonight, but also we see it in a recent piece published in The Nation, Danny McLean's piece about pregnancy and black babies. Humanity, I'm not your Negro. Humanity, the documentary film, humanity. It is the, it is the we are in this fight with that. But this is, this is a struggle that we confront with each other. And the reason I'm here is because after I wrote this piece, I'd gone into hibernation to write it. I wrote a journalist because they were putting together some, a conference in middle America for journalists who felt like the middle country where I live, Texas and that whole region, had been mischaracterized by the elite East Coast, West Coast press. So I wrote to express my interest in going to this conference, although it was late, and he wrote that he was so glad that I had written him because they were despairing over the lack of Hispanic journalists, and could I come and talk about immigration, changing demographics, NAFTA, and like these other things. Okay. I'm gonna just read y'all my response <laughs> because I think it elucidates where we are and we, where we could be going. And, and so here it is. And it's in blue, I copied and pasted, so it was blue with white, so it's gonna take, okay. So I said, um, we got to this place. Oh, um, we got to this place because of East Coast myopia of the places we call home, the middle country. By reducing me and my work to the Hispanic perspective, it replicates the same. There was a time when Hispanic journalists would be grateful for any door that was open, for any sign of us being included. But I have learned that when editors or anyone else asks me to write for them or to sit on a panel to talk about my perspective, they are asking me to perform their idea of my ethnicity. I haven't covered NAFTA immigration demographic shifts as such in a long time, in part because there's so many more ways to write about Latinos, particularly this moment. Trump wouldn't have had a campaign would his, without his assault on the border of Mexicans. I invite you to read my work, and I name some of it, and I said, uh, I write these pieces because as we saw in this election, most white journalists are incapable of seeing themselves and the white people they cover as anything else but the norm and the non-whites as the other. I'll be honest, I'm extremely disappointed and frankly hurt. Regardless of the work that I and other Latino writers produce, we are reduced to narrow definitions con and consigned to the efforts of diversity which in reality is scarcely different than Trump's successful effort to reduce our complex humanity to neat labels. I wish you luck. I really do, because I admire your work and I think it's an important project. And I hope and pray for the day to contribute the whole of my being to a core of journalists committed to work 
that challenges ourselves, reflects our complex part of our country and the complexity of the regular folks who inspire our work. And that core of journalists should be you. And that's why I'm here. And some last thoughts from Joseph Torres and Michelle Garcia. I believe there's a journalism that Matt is representative here. And, um, you know, uh, Bob, uh, Bob McChesney, who founded Free Press with John Nichols, have written books about the problem with the media and trying to come up with different solutions. Uh, how, uh, like, uh, what are different models to fund journalism? Should there be tax breaks, for example, if you want to purchase the media of your choice and you can declare on the taxes that it should be... Uh, um, you know, tax deductible. Um, we were just talking before the meeting. Uh, the broadcasters are now, uh, they're, auction, they're going to start auctioning off the broadcasters' airwaves. And in New Jersey, we have a project to say, hey, New Jersey, you have four broadcast, public broadcast stations that you're going to, it's going to participate in the auction, that they're going to use the, the, the airwaves to, uh, uh, to auction to wireless companies. What is the responsibility of those airways to the public in funding some sort of public media entity and public media, not to the traditional public media we talked about? So, when it, I work on policy, and I know for journalism, journalists, policy is like a toothache, right? You'd rather not even like touch it. I mean, most journalists have no idea how the media system works. You know, I worked in National Association of Hispanic Journalists for years, but we ha there has to be also policy solutions because we need a media. We need a news media that's functioning, uh, that provides news and information so we can participate in the society. So there is a real crisis, and. Um, there was a few years ago more energy toward these kind of policy solutions, uh, but um, we still have to get back to those kind of questions. So I was really fortunate to participate in a conversation um, a couple of years ago at the invitation of Ricardo uh, with Journalism That Matters, and this was something we discussed a lot. One of the things that came up that I firmly believe in, especially now that I have unofficially moved off the coast out of New York and back to Texas, um, is that we're really, it, that it, people pay for culture. Okay, you can't sell some, I mean, yes, there are some people who are like, okay, we need the media and I'm gonna pay for it, but they people pay for culture. That's why they buy green juices. That's why they take $20 yoga classes when they don't have health insurance, okay? This is why we eat kale. Nobody likes kale. It's cultural, and, it, and it's like there's an echo chamber of how cool it is. And I think that's where we're at, and I, I see that the media is having to reimagine itself because it is as a cultural force, and that people will support because it is an extension of them. And I think a perfect example of this comes from millennials. Okay, they don't have anything. Okay, they got the wrong end of the entire economy, and they're not waiting to get into, you know, to be recognized by the free press or to get published by established magazines. They're doing their own thing and giving each other awards and somehow finding money. And I think that it, why? Because it's a cultural force. And I think I would suggest to frame it as how do we capitalize, wrong word, um, take advantage of the important cultural position that we hold.
That's it for this edition of Making Contact. A very special thanks to the panelists, the Media Consortium, Joe Ellen Kaiser, Manolia Charlatan, and Paul Stewart for audio sweetening. If this episode inspires you to dig deeper into independent media and you feel you may want to pitch or produce something, share your ideas and reach out to us on our website, radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director, Marie Che, Anita Johnson, and Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager, and Vera Tykolsker is our development associate. I'm your host, RJ Lozada, and thank you for listening to Making Contact. Music